ComC is your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 30 million cards, from baseball superstars like Aaron Judge to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. Another week has passed since we last talked, and it's been another great week in the hobby for me. And one of those main reasons is because this week I had several mail days. I had an Undertaker rookie card that came in, one of the playing card versions that came in as a CSG 9.5 this time. I found that as a real good deal on eBay. But even better, in my opinion, was the massive Canadian mail day that I received. I worked out another deal with one of our fellow members of the Wax Pack Hero community, someone who listens to the podcast, and we've been doing some deals over the last couple months for some of these Canadian-issued baseball and wrestling cards, and this time it was a doozy. We worked out a deal for an almost complete 88 Quaker Dip set. It was only missing the British Bulldogs card. If complete 89 Quaker Dips set... Uh, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling card game that was complete, as well as the Rock and Wrestling sticker book and 224 of the 225 stickers that are actually unstuck in in pages, almost in perfect condition. Now those may not be pure Canadian issues, but those are super hard to find. Those Rock and Wrestling sticker books, especially with that many unstuck stickers, also had some. Opeachy, or they weren't Opeachy, they were Canadian Post um, baseball cards from the 60s. And those are also a little bit tougher to find, too. And so, have some of those food issue cards. He threw in a few other more modern Post and Jello cards, uh, baseball and hockey. And so, oh, and also an 87 Opeachy wrestling set in real nice shape. So, a big Canadian mail day. I am, I am pretty pumped to get these things all organized and slotted into their respective places in my collection. Well, I hope you enjoyed last week's conversation, part one of the, the talk that I had with Dr. Beckett. This week is going to be part two, and this is where we, we flip the mic a little bit, and I get to ask him some questions, and you'll hear some questions that are geared a little bit towards leadership and an approach to leadership for somebody who's building a a company from employee number one himself up to what it was when he finally sold it. And so we talked a little bit about leadership, and I think you're going to enjoy that conversation. And we'll start that after I tell you about Underdog Collectibles, the online shop run by collectors for collectors that breaks new products several days a week on Facebook and YouTube. You can find what they're going to be breaking this week by checking out udogcollect.com. You can also visit their brick and mortar shop in Knoxville, Tennessee to see their full selection of wax, singles, supplies, even watch some of those breaks live in the shop. They're also an approved group submitter to SGC. So if you've been thinking about getting some cards graded, you can learn more about that group submission program by checking out udogcollect.com as well. And when you do, make sure you tell them that Wax Pack Hero sent you. From a selling perspective, one of the questions that I had for you is it seemed like when you first kind of started the show, 
selling on ComC was probably your primary focus just due to the fact that you had less, you know, labor involved in in that, right? You weren't having to handle responding to those individual transactions. But since then, you've expanded a little bit to starting to list a few things on eBay. I guess one of the, the questions that I had for you with that was, what have you learned from your kind of entry or your foray into eBay selling that has made that either more enjoyable than you thought or or even on the flip side less enjoyable than you thought or maybe confirmed what some of your concerns were going into it okay well first of all i, I was doing com c from really early on because I, I i knew tim and uh so i thought and i just dabbled in it for for a while and then i got into it more so I, I already was going pretty strong before i started doing the podcast that's why i asked tim and if ComC wanted to be a, a sponsor or right from the very beginning. So I really like that. And again, it's just, it's easy. The stuff I don't want to do, they do. But then I started thinking over the years, I thought, well, you know, it can't be that bad to send out packages as long as they're not a whole bunch of them that are, you got to pull your orders and you've got to, uh, you know, go to the post office every day, all these negativity things that, that I don't want to do. I thought, well, wait, if I, if I got the lots worked up ahead of time, posted them on eBay, did not a Dutch auction, but you know, kind of you put a fixed price on there. And and what what has surprised me, which shouldn't have about eBay, is that no matter what how good a deal you put on a fixed price lot, they're gonna offer you half or whatever. They're gonna offer you as little as they can, and they're gonna be indignant if you don't, you know you know, cut them a deal or something. And so I'm trying to not be uh, a tough guy or anything. I really do want to sell the stuff, but if you price it right from the beginning with no, no slack, then eBay's not, not good. Then they, everybody just gets frustrated. If you, if you say it's a $50 lot and they offer you 25, I can reject that. But if they'd offer me 45, I'd say sold. I wouldn't counter with forty-seven fifty or something. Right. I would just say it's a deal. So, um, so eBay, um, I've I've learned. I mean, this has been my year. It's it's the, uh, frankly, Mike. It's the only way I'm going to make my one percent goal of one percent a month uh, decreasing. And so, uh, but just like ComC, the stuff I'm selling on ComC mainly is stuff that is not as important as the stuff I'm keeping. And the eBay stuff is other stuff that I, I think, so I, I want to sell 1% a month, but I want, I want it to be the 1% that I least want that month. I mean, I don't want to sell the best 1% every month. And, and from what you've described, it sounds like it's probably also similar to the way that I've approached it. Things that don't make sense to send in to, exactly. to come no, see, right? It, it, so it you, work you can put Com a lot of a hundred, you know, Jose Canseco cards that, that wouldn't exactly. be worth paying the 50 cents to exactly. processing to come see, but it might be worth getting that, you know, 25 or 30, $40 that you could get by selling it as a lot on eBay. Is, is that the, the approach that you've taken? Yes. Because uh, basically I know what's not going to sell on come see. It's stuff that it, it, it would be unwise to spend 50 cents to sell a card for, I mean, some of them are less than 50 cents when yeah. you look there and, and, uh, and, you know, Jose is, is, the guy I use as an example, but almost anybody, you know, that 
the uh, Derek Jeter or Cal Ripken or or uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Those guys. I mean, they're they're better than Jose, but still, some of the base cards, you know, people already have them, and so then you're going to picture. I can't picture every card if it's if it's a larger lot, but I can give a representative sample that they can see. I first of all, I thought I, I would just do all different, but that's a lot of labor there. And so I just do a sorted and then they want to know, well, what, how many dupes are there? <laughs> well, I, I just say it's already boxed up. It's already boxed up. So, so I've, uh, eBay has been less painful than I thought. And, um, and I think I'm not getting favors from eBay because I'm doing two things wrong. One, I'm charging for shipping. And I think in your, in the, uh, algorithms they want auction rather than fixed price and they want free shipping and so those two things keep me from getting as much exposure and visibility i think consistently listing new items is another key thing that that helps with that, that visibility yep okay. well and so even if it's a, a relatively small amount of things i think if you know i try to at least list a handful of items every day just to, to kind of maintain that kind of okay. active engaged status. And, and so, so that might be something get, worth considering too. So you think you get more views and more watchers and things like that when you do that? I think that that has helped. And, and I don't know the exact, but it seems like my over, if I'm listing a lot of new items, like new to me items, like not necessarily new in real life, but, but just new listings, it seems like I'll continue to get more offers on things that I've had up for longer periods of time. Even it's not just those brand new things that I've just put up that I'll get offers on or, or start to get sales from. It seems like I get more interaction on even some of those things that have been up a while if I'm consistently listing new items. And so I, I don't know the exact, I've not talked to anybody on eBay that's, that's given me that full confirmation, but there seems to be something there with kind of regularly listing helps well, with shows, that visibility. It shows you're active, but do you have a store? Do you have a I low do. level? Store? Yeah, I have the basics, I, the basic store. Yeah, I did the a $22 a month or whatever it is. Yeah. And okay, but that, that's a good tip. I think if it look, if, but see, I batch, I I'll do, I'll put a whole bunch of lots in, on a Saturday. Sure. And then I'll, then I'll, I won't put anything in for another month. And so yep. I think they, that's, it makes it seem like I'm a part-time, maybe unreliable dealer, I guess, which I'm not. So there's times where I will do a similar, similar, but not completely what you just talked about. There's times where I'll take a, a big chunk of time and I will get a bunch of my photos ready and, you know, all of that type of stuff ready to go. But then on throughout the week, I'll just list five or 10 of those. And so then at that point, all I've got to do is kind of pull it up, load my pictures, make the listing, but I, I'm not necessarily getting out the camera, syncing the, the camera to the computer, doing all of those types of things every single day to do that. Maybe only once a week, do I kind of get the 50 okay. to 60 items or whatever I want to list, do all of that stuff once, but then get them listed over the course of that week. Okay. Well, that's, I, I may, I may use your, uh, that wisdom then. I, Cause I, 
I do them. I, I do like, I'll do a whole bunch of them one Saturday and nothing for another month. And maybe that's, maybe that's downrating me on, on, uh, on eBay. And uh, is there anything else you do besides eBay and, and uh, are you doing a social media kind of uh, uh, private sale kind of things? Uh, not as a, like, I don't do the Twitter stack sales or anything like that. Um, the other thing that I'll, so there's two other things. I still will make Twitter sales, but it's typically somebody who's a follower who knows that I have stuff or they'll see me do one of my TikTok videos or something from the shop. And like last weekend, I had somebody reach out and said, Hey, you've got a bunch of junk wax stuff. Do you have any 1990 Donruss wax boxes at the shop? And I said, well, let me check. And I, when I went in on Saturday, I still had four. And so I sent him a message on Twitter said, I, Hey, I got four, four boxes. I could do 10 box, 10 bucks a box plus shipping on those. And he's like, I'll take all four. And so I brought them home and bundled them up. And so there's, there's sales like that, that I make through Twitter, but it's typically people who are following me who see something in one of my videos and say, Hey, I want that. Or, or they know that I've got a, a genre and they see if I've got anything and I'll put those together. The other thing that I'll do is um, after I've gone through these big collections and I've kind of pulled out my quarter box, dollar box type stuff and the sets, all of the rest of the bulk, I'll typically every few months put up a big Facebook marketplace listing for that, that big bulk listing for really cheap, just to kind of to get it out of the way. And so every once in a while, I'll use Facebook marketplace to clear out some of the the really big bulk accumulations that I've, that I've got from these other collections. Well, you know, everybody competes with everybody, you know, because everybody has cards for sale. And so you have to have your niche. And so in one sense, I compete with you. In another sense, I don't, especially because I wouldn't compete very well with you on the way you do it, because it sounds to me like you're much more aggressive in your providing a good deal. I mean, I think you price things lower than I do because you're especially on things that are that are uh, well, they're not easy to find, but you're you're providing a service. And I think I'm doing that on some of my eBay lots. I'm pricing them lower. But my Com C stuff, if I'm the only one that has it, I'm going to be more aggressive on on pricing it more fully uh, mm -hmm. with uh, with retail. But it sounds like every price you've thrown out to me sounds like, hey, that that was a, probably a pretty good deal for the buyer. And it's really going to encourage repeat business, which I, I do get repeat business on Com C and I get repeat business on eBay. But it sounds like you would probably get more because you're, you're really, it just sounds like you're, you're very fair in your pricing. Now, what that requires, Mike, is that you got to be buying right. Exactly. Because if you're not buying right, you can't, you can't sell at half price unless you're buying at half of half price or, yep. or better. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, I, I always, when people are giving me, um, you know, sometimes approaching me with offers or asking my my thoughts on how to start setting up their their sport lots or their, you know that sometimes I'll get, well, how can you make any money selling cards for eighteen cents on sport lots? I'm like, well, it's because I'm buying them for a half a cent a piece, and so when you're buying things for half a cent a piece, you can do that, right? Um, and the same thing with some of these other other deals, you know, if I'm able to to pick up a, a big collection and and buy these 
junk wax era boxes of of cards for for five bucks a piece. I'm happy if I can sell them for 10 bucks a piece within the same month that I sold them because, you know, doubling my money in less than a month and having that to be able to go towards another collection, I'm happy to to turn inventory that way and that type of thing. I, I would say the same thing for some of the more obscure or rare things. There's there's things like that that I definitely hold a little higher and I'm a little bit higher on um, and, and I'm willing to stick you know, a little bit higher, but if I'm able to get something at a good deal and I'm able to price it at a point where I can make something on it and turn it fairly quick, I'm willing to to do that. And um, that, that I found that that keeps people coming back into the shop that, that keeps people um, wondering what I've got new and, and can kind of proactively reaching out to me and asking, you know, what I've got available because they know I'm, I'm, I'm moving through things and so that's definitely one of the the approach that, approaches that I've taken to kind of help build that that base of business or that clientele. Okay, I've got a proposition and it's not for you. It's probably not for anybody, but I'm just wondering if I thought, you know, I think Sport Lots has a market there. Uh, it's proven to be a seller. You do, you, you do fine with it, but I don't think I have the patience to do it. And so if I were to say, I'm going to be able to sell cards at 18 cents a piece, but I've got to pull them. Is there somebody out there that I could say, I've got a monster box, somebody in Dallas, let's say, I've got a monster box of star cards of that are cards I'd sell for 18 cents on sport lots. Could I get somebody to say, hey, you post them for me, you take care of everything and you can have 12 cents out of the 18 cents. Would somebody take that deal? I I think that there probably would be people who who would either take that deal or would be able to work with you on on buying that bulk directly from you that then they could could take ownership of and kind of you know have have the well, control of. Um, it's like me selling it to them for six cents a card. Right, right. They and they, but I don't know that people would be very excited about that. And I not only that, you know, well, I mean, if they're all good cards, so they're not, there are no base common cards in there. They're all cards that would have some level of demand for a, for a newer collector. I know there are people, some of the bigger sport lot sellers, I, I, and again, not naming names, but I know there are some big sport lot sellers who have worked out deals with some big breakers who typically don't ship all of the base and inserts and only ship hits and they've proactively reached and found arrangements with some of those big big breaking outfits to buy their kind of bulk base I think and they inserts. buy them I think yep. they buy them yep. and they do it I'm just trying to figure out you know but then that's a wholesale sale right not a partnership or a, an arrangement where you're in it together but so I think what I'm doing on my eBay lots, if I if my proverbial hundred Jose Consecos, I think somebody could buy them for me and they're less than 18 cents, mm -hmm. you know, for a hundred of them. Uh, and they could put some of them on sports lots, sport lots, if they know that, Hey, this, it's a better brand or an earlier card. Um, but are you tuned in to sport lots of what, what is more likely to sell there? Yeah, I have the most success with, from a baseball perspective, 
it, there's still a huge set building community that utilizes sport lots to build sets. And so I'm not even necessarily always concerned that they have to be stars, but I'm more concerned that I've got, I'm buying a thousand or 2000 cards from the same set so that I've got a big swath of a set covered. So heritage is a super popular set on sport lots. Bowman is a super popular set on sport lots, especially the, the prospects sets and the, the Chrome prospects sets. Those are probably my two heaviest baseball selling sets on, on sport lots, um, basketball, football, and even hockey. I do well when I've got a, a wide variety because there's not as much inventory. Baseball is by far the biggest, biggest sport on sport lots. The others, if you've got a wide array of inventory, I've done well because I'll have people that kind of come in and, and buy from a bunch of different things and consolidate that all into one seller. Um, but from a baseball perspective, Heritage and Bowman are are by far my my two biggest selling sets. You know, the whole reason I started doing price guides in the first place is so that people would have kind of a medium of exchange. They would know that, hey, here's a fair price for this. And if I if it's wholesale, I give you half or whatever, if I'm getting some dupes or the condition, all that stuff. But I still, the most fun I have is, is buying a larger collection. It's multi-sport. That's that's cool. If it's different years, in fact, the newer stuff, it's given me a re not a re-education, but a new education to keep up with the cards of the last ten or twenty years, which I really wasn't. Uh, well, even thirty years when I wasn't as much, uh, you know, buying packs and stuff. So. A couple of the questions they weren't necessarily selling, but they're things that had been kind of on my mind as I, you know, listened okay. to you, you know, over the years. I guess there's two questions that that are back from the the time when you were kind of both getting Beckett started and then and then running running the organization. And and the first one is I know you were an avid collector. You had, you know, done some shows. You had an interest in a in a card shop early on before you really got things going but your educational background was more in kind of math and statistics, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And so I guess my first question was, what was that, that trigger point where you decided that you wanted to move more from just being cards as a hobby that you enjoyed going around and, and building that collection to starting a, a business that was going to be focused on, on cards. Well, I mean, basically, I, I think I was as much a dealer as I was a collector in the 70s. Okay. Because that's just what the advanced collectors were. You you had to sell cards in order to, unless you run, you know, independently wealthy, which I was not. You know, you, you, you know I made a good salary as a professor, but when I was a grad student, I didn't have that much money. So you're, you're buying and selling, you're trading. And so I was, I wasn't going to, I, I would say the first, before I started doing price guides, I I almost never went to a card show that I wasn't a dealer at the show. You saw, I wasn't going to shows. And then all of a sudden I started the magazine that I'm really in business. I'm really a publisher and author, all that stuff. And then I, then I never went to a show as a dealer after that. I, I only went as a observer or, you know, picking up type cards. And now 
I can just, I can buy what I want to buy without anybody looking over my shoulder. Actually, people do still look over my shoulder sometimes, but, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, so I think I had a business aspect to it right from the beginning. And that's, maybe I haven't been clear about that, but in the early seventies, I was making good money, even though it was a pittance now, but I built a collection and it was uh, just like you, it was self-funded plus, plus I had extra money. Uh, but a lot of that extra money got plowed into cards, but uh, yeah. So it's always had a business aspect to it. Even the price guide, the and early price guides were to, were to facilitate the commerce of it. So I, I understood it couldn't just be two old guys getting together and trading dupes. You know, it had to be more, it had to be broadened from there. And so, so I, I was a very serious dealer, you know, and I was at most of the really big shows of the day. There weren't as many in those days. So there was like a show circuit, you know, each major town had one. They didn't overlap too much. And then obviously it got bigger and bigger to where you couldn't do that. But, but the seventies were a fabulous decade for me as a collector and a dealer. So then by the time that you started Beckett and, and went into that, that side of the business, there's a difference between having a deep level of industry knowledge and the knowledge of what it takes to be kind of an independent dealer that like you just described, but it's a whole nother skill set to run an organization and lead an entire organization with, instead of just you and maybe a couple people who are helping you at a show, a whole team of people that are trying to run a, a big organization, right? So it's for a leader, it takes a lot of humility sometimes to admit that you don't know everything. And so I was curious, as you continue to ramp up Beckett, what did you do to further your understanding of, of running a, a, a company, running an organization, when you, when you identified that there was a, an aspect of running Beckett that you were not familiar with? What did you do to either find somebody who had that skill set or build that skill set yourself? Two things. One is that it was incremental. You know, we were we were growing uh, steadily. So every month it seemed like we're hiring somebody. Uh, initially, we were just hiring for for kind of skill and attitude and 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 just good work ethic and versatility, jacks of all trades. But after we got up to a certain point, then we needed more specialists. So we need somebody to really work with the printer. The second concept, which I've never heard really discussed, I'm going to call empirical humility. Now you can put those words together and figure out what I mean. Is it, you know, it to to be to be humble about something that you already figured out, Mike, that you're not very good at. It's easy to be humble when you've messed up or you've realized this is the limit. And for me to go beyond that, I'm going to have to stop everything else I'm doing and get up to speed on some new programming language. I was a really good programmer and I did all the early programs. But to get to the next level, I would have had to stop every, everything else to, to, to gain a competency. I probably could have done it. And so, uh, and then there were other things like design. You know, I was the the designer for some of those early issues. Well, 
not so great there. So that's empirical humility. You learn humility by people saying, hey, what you did over here, that's really good. This other stuff, mm, not so much. <laughs> and you think, well, nobody gets all the gifts from God to be good in everything. Everybody's everybody's smart in a certain way and gifted in a certain way. And so empirically, growing up, you got to figure out what are you good at? And so I'm not, I wouldn't, I was uh, probably a lead by example guy. And, I, and I'm a good strategy guy. So I could figure out what needed to be done and, uh, and I could do it up to a certain level. And then I could bring somebody in and say, hey, can you take it from here? And I really was blessed to have some fabulous, you know, fabulous employees who took it beyond. That's when it really fully blossomed. Was that something that you had already kind of established within yourself before you started Beckett or was, were those lessons that you learned along the way as you were, as you were ramping up, like you said, you know, I, I guess how much of that was kind of intuitive or had already been ingrained in you from your parents or from your past or from some of those early dealings versus how much were those hard lessons that you had to learn as you were kind of ramping up with the, with the company? Let's see if I can do these three things. Number one, yeah, my family was somewhat entrepreneurial, but not it, it didn't wasn't evident until later. But uh, I had done, uh, let's see, I thought about it before I got started of how would I do these things? And I had the experience of the previous job to, to doing this. I was an expert witness and I went all over the country testifying in employment discrimination class actions, which is basically companies that are messed up. You know, they're having employee problems because they did. And I always thought, gee, if I were running this company, I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, they were treating employees badly or, you know, based on their age or their race or their sex. And that's, that's bad business. And so I thought if there's anything, if I ever had a company, I wouldn't do it that way. And so when I did have a company, I thought I'm going to do it the way that avoids those kind of problems. And then the other thing I did that I maybe mentioned a little bit, I, I used to go to Harvard for a year, for a week every year mm -hmm. for kind of an executive education thing, which it's not that I didn't learn stuff. I did learn stuff, but it mainly ratified and, uh, you know, kind of showed me that, that we were on the right track. I was still running the company when I started doing that. Um, but I was, and I was more of a CEO by then. And, uh, you know, the guys were taking care of the price guide stuff. So that was helpful, but it wasn't, it wasn't, but by then the die was cast, mm -hmm. you know, the, the early, you know, I guess the, the sports card insight that I would say is that the early hires in a company are so important because they either fight against the culture that the leader wants to establish or they embrace it. Mm-hmm. And I was really blessed that, well, one of my first employees was my sister. <laughs> who, uh, that was a good cultural fit. Let's just put it that way. She was terrific in so many ways. And then some of the other people that I'm still great friends with, not all of them. I mean, most of them don't work for uh, the company anymore, but they're still friends. And, you know, I, I, there were, uh, to have character and competency is is great. That's trust is built on character and competency. I I, I know that you care. I know you've got uh, the skills. You're going to do the right thing. And again, so the empirical humility is saying, 
you know, is is saying, I, I've got I've got confidence that that not only can you do can you do it better than me, but you can do it well enough that it's, you know, because they weren't trying to just be better than me. They were trying to just do a really good job to be accurate, to be timely. And um, so I, I, I've had a great ride. And so my podcast is the opposite of that in the sense that I don't have a whole big team behind me unless you count guys like you and, and other uh, guests and rich and people that I've, uh, you know, new friends and old friends. Um, but I, I like getting my hands dirty. That's mm-hmm. why I like sorting cards. That's why, that's why, that's why I like the hobby. Cause it's, it's tangible. Uh, there's a work product. There's a physicality to it. Uh, you feel good about it. You can point to it. You can put it on the wall. Yeah. So, the, I always tell people too, it's from the, the business side, there's, there's like a puzzle that you're also trying to solve, right? How yeah. can I, how can I take this and how can I package it in a way that it adds value, you know, or somebody identifies, identify value or other people don't see it and put something together in a way that people are going to enjoy it and, and want to, to buy it or collect it or add it to their collection. I, I think that puzzle solving aspect of it is, is very appealing to me as well. And when you're hiring people, you know, I really think, again, this is stumbling onto it in hindsight, but I was hiring doers rather than dreamers. Mm-hmm. I didn't need people to be chief vision officers. I already was the chief vision officer. I mean, they could they could try to ask me good questions or or say, hey, have you thought about this? But ultimately, I needed people who are going to be doers and not, you know, be sitting in a room thinking about thinking deep thoughts. We had to get magazines out. We had to get books out. We had to do these things and and they, they were diligent. They were hardworking. Um, You know, they, we had deadlines, Mike. I mean, that's why we hired people from newspaper background and from ad agency background. They understood deadlines and they thought, gee, these deadlines are just monthly. Mm -hmm. That's we can handle that. And so we were almost never late. In fact, the time we were late, was when it was me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. The, the second, the second uh, issue of the magazine missed the printer window, and that was me. I was a, a half a day late, and the printer said, "Oh, you missed your press time. We'll get you. We can fit you in next week." I said, "Wait a minute. I, I have." They said, "Well, you know, your the deal was, you know, you had to have it here at eight o'clock in the morning. It's one o'clock in the afternoon, or whatever it is." Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks. I, I hope we had a good balance there. I, I kind of monopolized the first uh, big part of it, but uh, always enjoy talking to you and keep up the good work. It's appreciated. I'm sure people enjoy it other than just me. You're one of the ones I listen to. So. Well, I appreciate it. I, I It means a lot that that you find value in in some of the thoughts that I'm, I'm well, trying your, to your share in some of the conversations. Your desire is to be helpful. And that's yep one of the attitudinal things of the people, you know, our, especially our first 50 employees, nobody ever said, Hey, that's not my job. Yep. They said it needed to be done. I think you have that same attitude. So that I'm always going to get along well with people that are, that are, that have that attitude. So. Oh yeah. And it, it means so much when somebody reaches out and was like, Hey, I listened to your episode on whatever topic and man, I've been able to, do this, or I've been able to add this to my collection, or I'm, I'm, I'm making an extra 50 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month and build my collection for free or whatever. Like 
hearing when people kind of reach out and share that they're getting value out of some of the stuff that I'm, I'm helping or, or trying to share and that that's been meaningful to them, that, that just means so much. And so, yeah, that being helpful, yeah. adding value, that's, that's kind of the. Well, your, your crusade for sustainability is something that people ought to take seriously. No one can get burned if they do that. Yep. They can have some disappointment. They can have some exhilaration. They're never going to have the highest of the highs because they're not going to be out on a limb. Yep. They're not riding the roller coaster. They're enjoying, they're enjoying a hobby that's, that's uh, sustainable. So I, I hope you'll keep preaching that. It's not really preaching. You're practicing it. Yep. I'm practicing it too. Yep. Uh, Cause I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go borrow money to, to right. buy a card. It's. But if you're patient, but you if you're can patient, still, you work your way up to it. You, you can still, right. You know, I've, I was able to get a, a Jordan rookie. I was able to add my awesome Michael Jordan autograph basketball and my rock auto and, and my complete my 67. And, you know, I'm on the, I'm working on 60 and 61 now, but I've all of these, you know, 67 through whatever modern complete sets that I've been able to add with the, the Ryan and the Seaver and all of those. And now I'm on 60 and 61 that I'm put like, I've been able to build all of this all paid for with profits, no quote unquote paycheck money doing it. Love it. Um, and, and I don't have to have it right now. I'm patient. I can, I can build up those profits to then be able to, to buy some of those key cards and things and um, don't have to worry about those ups and downs the same way. If I'm, if I'm not going, like you said, going out on a limb on it. So. And I look forward to seeing you in Chicago. For the, yep, the I'll be there. Okie doke. Thanks, Mike. All right. See I'll you talk soon. to you later. You bet. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Pat Hughes, Cubs announcer, coming to you from the sports card shop in beautiful New Buffalo, Michigan. The Gocher family has built an incredible place here for collectors to buy, sell, and trade cards and memorabilia. Be sure to stop by and let them show you around. TheSportsCardShop.com, connecting sports, athletes, the hobby, and collectors around the world. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing the second half of that conversation as much as I had as being a part of it. We kind of continued the selling conversation. We talked a little bit about the leadership like I referenced in the opening. And I, I just really enjoyed getting those perspectives from Dr. Beckett. Well, next week, the Super Collector Conversations continue, and this time I'm going to be bringing on Ken Capel, and we're going to be talking about his hockey card collection, his collection of young guns, and some of the other things that he focuses on, Columbus Blue Jackets in particular. So tune in next week to hear another Super Collector Conversation. That is all I've got for you today. I'll catch you next time.